The text for this morning's service is from the prophecy of Jonah, chapter 1, to verses 1, 2, and 3. Let's read that together. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. After the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 139, the stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 13. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, last week I read in the news about an Indianapolis cookie shop which faced eviction from its longtime location for refusing a special order from a college homosexual group. The owner of the store took a moral stand by not filling the order to supply the group for the following week's national coming out day. He felt that by filling that order, he would be providing a microphone for homosexuals to celebrate their sinful lifestyle. What do you think about that? Do you think that this man was right? Do you think that that is what God required of him? No doubt this man was very courageous, for he was willing to give up his business for his moral stand. But is that what God wants from us? The prophet Jonah was also confronted with a moral dilemma. The Lord told him to go to Nineveh, to that heathen people, and to pass on the impending judgment of God upon them. But he refused. Jonah did not want to do any did not want anything to do with these people. Jonah, however, was clearly disobedient. The Lord wants him to go there. He expects him to be a witness in this wicked world. What does all this mean? How are you and I supposed to be a witness in this world? Well, that's what I will preach to you about this morning. The theme is as follows. The Lord expects Jonah to be his witness in this wicked world. We will first see the Lord's compassionate concern, and secondly, Jonah's arrogant indifference. First, then, the Lord's compassionate concern. The text says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. The word of the Lord came to him. That is a wonderful beginning to this particular prophecy. The Lord says that to him, even though he is an unfaithful prophet of the Lord. God's word came to a sinful man like Jonah. He calls him by name. Jonah, son of Amittai. Jonah is no stranger to him. 
He knows his name, his family. He knows everything about him. He knows Jonah better than anyone else knows him. And he knows especially what a sinful man he was. Nevertheless, the Lord God wants to use that man, that sinful man, in his kingdom. Now, that's wonderful, isn't it? The Lord teaches us here that he uses sinful man to proclaim his word. And that is also what is so comforting about this book for all of us. We expect perfection in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We expect that especially from our leaders. We look to the elders and the ministers and we have difficulty dealing with some of their shortcomings. Well, the Lord uses sinful men for his work. That is certainly a comfort for me. That does not mean, of course, that he overlooks our sins and shortcomings. Not at all. But what it does mean is that God does not turn his back on us. He keeps calling all of us to faithful service, even to perfection, even though we cannot reach that goal. And he did that to Jonah, and he did that to each and every one of us. The Lord our God never turns his back on us in spite of our sins. And he did not turn his back on Jonah either for that reason. He saw in Jonah a man whom he could use. For who is this Jonah? Well, there is one other place aside from this prophecy where we meet him in the scriptures, namely in 2 Kings 14 verse 25. It says very little about him, but it makes clear that during the reign of Jeroboam II, Jonah was already an established prophet before he received the call to go to Nineveh. Little else is said about his prophetic work in Israel. It just says that he had prophesied that the borders of Israel would be restored to their former dimensions. Indeed, during Jeroboam II's reign, the greatness of Israel rivaled that, if not indeed surpassed, the splendor of the time of King David and Solomon. There were no external threats to its existence. The nations were content to let Israel be. There was peace, prosperity, and security. Everything was coming up roses. Israel did not have a worry in the world. They had it made. At least so it seemed. There was plenty of food. There was great riches. They were strong. Indeed, if you read through the prophecy of Amos, who was a contemporary of Jonah, and then you find out how good the people had it at that time. We read in Amos' prophecy that Jeroboam had won many battles against the smaller nations around them. Israel, at this point in its history, was a very powerful nation, more powerful than at any other time in its history. There were no external threats to its existence. There was also a very large merchant class with great houses of dressed stone, and decorated with inlaid ivory work. Amos also tells us that they had pleasant vineyards with their trailing grapevines and luscious fruit. They ate and drank to their heart's content. They perfumed themselves and listened to music while lying on fine couches. They were also very religious, for they celebrated their religious festivals with many blood offerings and with an elaborate choral worship. 
That is how things looked from the outside. But Amos also tells us something else about the people of that time. He tells us about the absolute moral bankruptcy of Israel. Even though they were outwardly religious, there was flagrant injustice everywhere. Judges could be bought with a piece of silver. The rich oppressed the poor and the weak. The majority of the people in Israel did not really serve the Lord. Outwardly they did, but their hearts were far from the Lord. They were haughty, they were proud, and they looked down on people who were in a lesser state. They did so to their fellow countrymen, but they did so especially to the other nations around. For the people of Israel truly thought of themselves as the Lord's favorite son. There was no humility. There was a great sense of false security. In a nutshell, the prevailing L attitude at that time was this. Look at all the things that we have done. We are a nation to be reckoned with. We have expanded our borders. We have great wealth. We've got everything our little hearts desire. And we've got all the luxuries in the world. Look at us. And do you know why they thought that they had come so far? Basically, it was because they thought that they were God's special people because they were better. They were better than the people of the other nations around them. God loved them because, as we would say today, they belonged to the true church. They were better than others, and for that reason, God chose them to be members of his church. It is for that reason that God's favor shines upon them. How arrogant. But do you know what is just as disturbing, if not worse? Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, shared in that thinking. He too thought that Israel was a great country. Certainly a lot greater than all the other nations. And he shared the haughtiness of his fellow countrymen. Indeed, as is clear from his attitude throughout the rest of his letter, he saw their prosperity as a just reward from the Lord. But due to his arrogant attitude, there was something that Jonah did not understand. He could not understand how it was that that great nation, Assyria, was such a prosperous country. For he knew about the great immorality that you found there. And above all, he knew that they were an uncircumcised people. In other words, they were not part of God's covenant people. And yet that nation could lay claim to one of the greatest cities of the world of that day. And that city was called Nineveh. Nineveh was no doubt the most splendid city in the world of that day. For it was there that many Babylonian emperors throughout the ages had their palaces. And at the time of this prophecy it boasted a population of 120,000 inhabitants. And it occupied a very large area. For the administrative district was between 50 and 100 kilometers across. It took a three-day journey to go from one end of the city to the other. It was a great city. And it had a long and venerable history. Nineveh had already been in existence for thousands of years. 
The first time that a city is mentioned is already just after the flood. We read about that in Genesis 10, verse 11, where we read that Nimrod, the great, the mighty hunter before the Lord, that he was the one who built it. But it says in our text that the wickedness of that great city had come up before the Lord God. And you know, that is the other wonderful thing about the beginning of this book. The great wickedness of that nation, of that heathen city, comes before God. You may say, well, what's so wonderful about that? What's so wonderful about the fact that that wickedness came up before God? Well, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, just imagine if that was not so. Just imagine that God would overlook the sin of that city or overlook the sin of any other city. Do you know what that would mean? That would mean that the Lord God no longer cares. That would mean that then he would leave them in their miserable state. And when God does that, when he no longer cares about the wickedness of mankind, then he gives them over to their own filth, to their own state of condemnation. And then there is no longer any hope. And so it is a good thing that the Lord cares very deeply about this whole world and what happens in it. He does, and that's a good thing. He cares about what happens here in this nation of Canada. He cares about what happens in the United States. He also cares about what happens in the countries of Africa and Asia and in Australia and in China. He cares very deeply. And therefore we have to be careful for the same tendency as you find with the Israelites can also be found amongst us. We also may think that God only cares about us, about the Canadian Reformed Church. Other people, such as the unbelievers around us and the other nations, even people in other Christian churches, well, those people are not on God's prayer list. And so we shun the work of evangelism because why should we bother? God has given up on the world anyway, so why shouldn't we? And that's also the way we think about politics. Why bother? God doesn't really care what happens to the rest of the country. He just cares about us. Why should we bother? You see, that's what Jonah thought. He thought that God should have nothing to do with that wicked nation. Let him care, let him care about his own people. Then he will be busy enough. Well, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, if that's your state of mind, then you're wrong. God cares. When a nation sins, then that sin deeply disturbs him. He does not overlook their sins. And that is, as I said, a wonderful thing. He does not want to do that with your own personal life either. For it may be that in your own life that there are secret sins. And no doubt you're glad that nobody knows about your secret sins. You put up a brave face and somehow you applaud yourself that you are able to keep it secret. Don't be so glad. For one way or the other, the Lord God will confront you with your sin. He will not leave you alone. He will send you a storm in your life to wake you up. He does that because he wants you to lead a life of repentance. 
Just like he wants the nations to repent. You see, the Lord God knows everything. Your personal sinfulness is known to the Lord. He knows all about you. In a moment, we'll sing from Psalm 139. And there in that psalm, David asks, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? David knows the Lord is everywhere. You cannot escape his presence. And that is why David also asks him to search him and to know him. For David knows that if God were to overlook his sins, that then everything would be totally hopeless for him. He says in Psalm 23 and 24 of that psalm, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, that includes you boys and girls, do you ever pray that way in your own personal prayer? Do you ever pray to the Lord that you want him to discover if there is any offensive way in you? Well, if you don't do so yet, you should. Pray to the Lord God that he may search you and make you aware of your own sinfulness so that you do not become blind and deaf to what he has to tell you. For you do not want the Lord God to pass over your sins. For if he does pass over them, then it will not be well with you. If you do not allow him to pound out your own sins to you, then there may come a time when it is too late. And then you will not be an effective witness either. For someone who thinks that he is better than others, and who comes across as a know-it-all, as somewhat arrogant will not be effective. The Lord God wants us to reach out to others, also to sinners, in love and compassion, because we care. God also cares. And it takes a lot of wisdom and insight to see how we are to do that. But you cannot shun the world. That's also what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. He tells us that we live in this world and we do not judge the world, only God does. And that is how he deals with individuals and also with nations, as he did with Nineveh. The Lord says to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Jonah is sent to the heathens to proclaim God's message. But Jonah has a different mind. And that brings us to the second point, namely Jonah's arrogant indifference. Jonah ought to have been very happy that the Lord came to him to want to use him to bring about repentance. Jonah had been especially chosen to bring God's word to that heathen city. But instead he refuses to do, he refuses to do what he is told to do. Jonah goes in exactly the opposite direction as God tells him to go. He goes to Joppa on the coast. He buys a fare and he sets sail to the city of Tarshish, a city most likely on the coast of modern-day Spain. 
Why do you think Jonah did that? Do you think perhaps that he was afraid, afraid that he could not do what he is told to do by the Lord, and that for one reason or the other, that God was not able to do what he said he would do? Well, that's not very likely. Jonah appears to be the bold type. He is not like Moses who protests when God commissions him. Moses was afraid that he would not be able to do it. He wanted God to send his brother Aaron. Jonah is not like that. As appears from the rest of this book, Jonah seems to be quite a confident man. He is too much taken in with his own worthiness and the worthiness of his fellow church members, his fellow countrymen. And from the letter it is also clear that Jonah is not a person who sees his own shortcomings, nor the shortcomings of his own people. No, Jonah is not afraid. Something else prevents us. And what could that be? Could it be perhaps that he thought that the Lord God would not be able to follow through on his threat to destroy that city? And that so he would be making a fool of himself? Well, brothers and sisters, that cannot be the reason either. For there is nowhere any evidence that Jonah does not believe that the Lord God is not able to do what he says he will do. No, Jonah believes in the power of God. What then is the problem? Well, the problem is this. Jonah is loath to do what the Lord tells him because he does not believe that God should send him to that heathen nation. As I said, Jonah is a proud Israelite. Jonah cannot understand that God would have anything to do with that heathen nation. And furthermore, Jonah does not want that city to repent. He hates the Ninevites. Why should they have a second chance? Do you see what the problem is, brothers and sisters? His problem is that he very clearly sees the sin of others, but that he does not see his own sin, nor the sin of his own nation, Israel, the covenant people of the Lord. That's also a warning for us. When we see the sins of others, we first have to see our own sins. We first have to take the beam out of our own eyes before we take out the splinter of someone else's. And if you do that, then you do not come across heartily either. For if you do, then you will not be effective. Ultimately, Jonah's action was that of unbelief. Jonah did not believe that God's mercy was as great as he said it was. He thought that his mercy was more for the church than for the rest of the world. But God wants all of mankind to come to repentance. And that is why he sent his only son. The Apostle John tells us in his gospel that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He sent his son to deal with sin. One of the problems that we all have is that we have the tendency to take our blessings for granted. We believe that God has chosen us and that we are his covenant children. We believe that God's favor rests on the church. And that's certainly true. But because we are so familiar with that truth, after a while we could begin to believe that God's favor is due to us because we are such good people. 
And that's a trap that the Jews fell into. And that is why the majority of the Jews rejected Christ when he came to earth. They no longer saw their own sinfulness. They boasted of the fact that they were children of Abraham. And that is why Israel was no longer a branch of the vine. They were broken off and others were grafted in. Brothers and sisters, the same thing can happen to the church of today. It can also happen that we think that we are too good for the rest of the world. We attribute our material well-being to our own obedience, to our own inherent goodness. But listen to the warning of Paul. He says in Romans 11 verse 21, For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Indeed, that's what happened in the end to Israel. But let's be careful. It can also happen to us. Jonah should have been thankful that God wanted him to go to Nineveh and bring the message of reconciliation to that nation. He should have been thankful that God would not overlook their sin. For when God does not want to overlook the sin of the world, he certainly does not want to do that to the church. The sad thing is that once you set your mind on the wrong course of action, you also find your unbelief confirmed. For the devil has a way of fooling us. He whispers in our ears and tells us that everything adds up and that it is logical that things should go the way they do. And no doubt that's what Jonah thought as well. For Jonah goes to Joppa and lo and behold he finds a ship that goes to Tarshish or to Tarshish, a ship that is going in exactly the opposite direction. And now he fools himself. He sees the hand of God in this. God provided a ship for him to go in the opposite direction. By the time Jonah went on board, Jonah was fully convinced that that was the right thing to do. And that is why Jonah could also sleep as soundly as he did, as you can read further on in this chapter. And I'm sure that's the way it was also with Eve. She knew that the fruit was forbidden. But then she saw that the fruit was good for food. No doubt by the time she took a bite from the forbidden fruit, she was convinced that it was the right thing to do. God had put that tree there, hadn't he? And that fruit is there for our consumption, isn't it? How many of you find yourselves confirmed in your sins? Think about it. Think about the kinds of sins that no longer bother you, but which deep down you know they should. Are you also fooling yourself? Well, if you are not too comfortable right now, don't be. Hope that the Lord God will find a way of confronting you with your sin. And pray that you will have the strength to change. For brothers and sisters, boys and girls, you do not want to have a false sense of security. It can be deadly. The Lord God is about to send a mighty wind as Jonah makes his way to Tarshish. God does not leave Jonah alone. And that is the comfort that we may also have this morning. God will not allow you and me to wallow in our sins. And the same thing is true in a certain sense about the rest of the world. But how do we witness? We do that with compassion. We do that because we care. We do that because we want others to come to repentance. And so we had better make sure that we sent the right message.
to the world. For that is the wonderful thing about the, about the discovery of our sins. The more we realize our own sins, the more we realize how great our redemption is, the more we are driven to lead lives of thankfulness, and the more we are driven to speak to others about it, compassionately. And so, brothers and sisters, be thankful and be a witness. Be thankful that God has made you part of his people, but also be compassionate to other sinners. Whatever message you want to send them, make sure that it is a message of joy, a message of salvation for all those who do not want to live in their sins. Amen.